Well, if you'd like to uh, turn in the uh, brochure to session two, uh, our theme here is the King of Righteousness, and um, uh, we're going to be looking mainly at chapter nine and chapter eleven. But again, I'd like to give us a little bit of context because um, in the coffee break, several people said they found it quite helpful to have the historical background and to see, you know, where these some of them very famous passages actually fit in and how they're part of the ongoing revelation of the whole book. Now, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah uh, form really a coherent unit. And the one that we were looking at, chapter 6, before our break, uh, is really the centre point and the pivot of the whole 12 chapters. Uh, In uh, the unit, chapters 1 to 5, explain the situation in which Isaiah is called to minister. And so we spent a little bit of time in chapter 1, didn't we, with Jerusalem, the faithless city. And another picture that's given in chapter 5 is of Judah as a vineyard planted by God, cared for and nourished, but only producing bad fruit and therefore ripe only for destruction. So chapters 1 to 5 really give us the situation into which Isaiah comes Chapter 6, how God touches his life and starts to transform him. And then chapter 7 to 12, the historical situation in which he begins his ministry. And uh, running through this unit, chapter 7 to 12, which is often called the book of Emmanuel, God with us, the, the, the chapters start to answer that question, well, how will God transform the situation? How can a new faithful city and people be created? And the answer is by the coming of a great king, a righteous king, a fulfillment of everything that was foreshadowed when the kingship of Israel was at its best in the days of David and Solomon. So in this second study, we're going to look at some portraits of the king, two especially And if time gives us uh, the opportunity, we may look at a third, but we'll see how the time goes. Now, the setting into which Isaiah spoke these great words uh, was anything but encouraging. So turn back with me, if you will, to chapter 7, which you'll find on page 690, chapter 7, and uh, the first verse. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now this character Ahaz, uh, the third of the four kings in whose reigns uh, Isaiah prophesied, uh, has recently come to the throne and he's now facing a double attack from Israel, which is, of course, the ten tribes in the north. This is the horrific situation, that the people of God are divided and they're now fighting one another. And with Israel from the north comes the kingdom of Syria, whom, uh, with, with whom the Israelites have formed uh, an alliance. And they are trying to get the king Ahaz in Jerusalem to join their alliance. Why are they doing it? Well, because the mighty power... To the north is Assyria, and the Assyrian Empire is about to sweep down and to take all of these countries into its orbit, to make them um, its, uh, its vassals, really, its slaves. 
Now, Ahaz faces then a crisis, and Isaiah uses the crisis to teach him a very important spiritual lesson. So he says, what are you going to put your trust in? Here you are facing these two armies which are trying to besiege your city. The Assyrians are out there as a bigger threat beyond them. How are you going to cope with this? What are you going to put your trust in? Is it going to be in human policies or is it going to be in divine promises? And that is the message that God sends Isaiah to bring to King Ahaz um, with a challenge and a choice. Um, He promises him that these two uh, firebrands, as he calls them, in chapter 7, verse 4, are not going to burn down the city of Jerusalem. They're not going to take the city. Um, They have plotted against it, but God says it will not happen. Um, He is going to deliver his city of Jerusalem. But the challenge comes as to whether Ahaz the king is going to believe that and trust God, or whether he's going to try and fight his own battles and ignore God, and uh, make his own alliances and try and bring things to a better end in his own way. And for me, the key verse is chapter 7, verse 9, the second half of the verse, which is what God says to Ahaz through Isaiah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now that is a key spiritual principle that runs all the way through Isaiah, Indeed, it runs all the way through the Bible. But here it's put especially memorably, isn't it? If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And the reason for that is because God is the only ultimate source of strength and stability. And uh, faith always relies on God's provision. Uh, It believes the promises that God has made. And so it lives according to those promises, obeying his commands. Now, I think there's a real lesson here for our spiritual lives. You see, when we're tempted not to want to obey God's commands, and that's what temptation's all about, to go our way rather than to go God's way, what is it that enables us to be obedient to God? Or let's put it another way, why are we ever disobedient to God? And I think the reason is because we don't really believe his promises. If we believe his promises, we will find ourselves obeying his commands. But if I don't really believe his promises, that he's going to be good to me, that he will do what he said he will do, then I shall probably want to do things my own way, as Ahaz did, and I shall end up disobeying God's commands rather than relying on him. So some of us years and years ago learned a little song that says, Trust and Obey... For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that is a key principle of the Christian life. Trust and obey. Not just trust. The proof of trust is obedience. And the evidence of obedience or the creation of obedience is through trust. So the two things go together. Trust the promises and obey the commands. And it runs like that all the way through the Bible. But sadly, Ahaz is a disaster as a king. He refuses to accept God's gift of a sign, even though God says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. That's chapter 7, verse 14. But he doesn't believe that. He's not prepared to accept the signs of God. He wants to go his own way. And so he tries to make an alliance with the Assyrians, the big boys, 
in order to bring in their help against Israel and Syria. And of course, what happens is he gets taken over by the Assyrians and he starts paying taxes to them. And before he knows where he is, his kingdom is being milked by the Assyrian Empire and his resources are filling their coffers because he didn't obey the command and he didn't obey because he didn't trust the promises. And that was the great tragedy with uh, King Ahaz. Now, let's go then to chapter 9, which is our first portrait. If you've got the outline in front of you, you'll see that I've called the first seven verses of chapter 9, God's King Arrives. And I think uh, the great thing about these two chapters, 9 and 11, which are wonderful messianic promise chapters, is that they are full of hope. And hope is a very precious commodity, isn't it? But it's sometimes very hard to come by. Uh, We can't live without hope, and yet so many people, including ourselves sometimes, find our hopes are not fulfilled, and many people live uh, a life of shattered hopes. Why do people become cynical and bitter as they get older? Well, because the things they hoped for haven't really appeared in their lives. And I think what happens is that the word hope and the concept of hope gets devalued in our culture. It's interesting actually that some of the great Bible words like love and hope and peace and truth are all words that are being devalued all the time in the world around us. So now we can have fake truth and we can have um, peace that is just simply a passing emotion and truth is, well, what you want it to be and so on. Uh, And and yet hope is like that too. Um, I sometimes illustrate this. We have some friends today who... Uh, have a wedding in their family and um, I don't know how the snow is affecting their wedding but um, yesterday they would have had a rehearsal at church and um, supposing the minister after he's been through you know the process so that we all know where we're going to stand and what we're going to do um, turns to the um, bride and he says I hope it'll be a nice day tomorrow and she says yes I hope so by which she means it would be lovely if the sun shone and if it was spring-like, but knowing it's British weather, it may be snowing, uh, it may be very cold. I hope means in that case, wouldn't it be nice if, but who can tell? And then he turns to the bridegroom and he says, oh, and I hope that your bride turns up at church tomorrow. <laughs> and he says, I certainly hope so, by which he means... it would be nice if she did, but maybe, who knows? Now, now he means something quite different by his use of hope, doesn't he? He doesn't mean, wouldn't it be nice if, but it may not. He means, on the basis of what's already led up to this day, I'm trusting that she will be there, and that she will say her words, and say her I do's, and we will be married. Now, that is what biblical hope is like. See, when we hear about hope in the Bible, we tend to think of it in terms of, well, it would be nice if it were to happen, but maybe it won't. No, it's not biblical hope. Our hope is sure and steadfast and certain. We don't yet have it all, just like the bridegroom doesn't yet have the bride until the wedding ceremony. But we do, on the basis of what has happened up to this moment, trust that God is going to be fulfilling his promises and he's going to be providing what he's offered. And that is what we should think of a biblical hope. Not wishful thinking, but a sure and certain expectation of what God is going to do. 
Now, as Isaiah spoke these words, uh, the outlook was pretty grim, really. This Assyrian empire was a most powerful war machine, probably the most powerful the world had ever seen at that time. And it was gradually overrunning and conquering all the little kingdoms of the ancient Near East. And Isaiah's message was not that God was going to magic away the threat. Rather, he saw it as part of God's judgment against the sins of his wayward people. But he looked beyond the reality of what was happening immediately. And as he looked beyond it and, as it were, underneath it to understand the spiritual perspective, which is what we must always do, it gave rise to this great message of hope. Uh, He knows from his call in chapter 6 that he's not going to bring spiritual revival in Judah, but he is going to gather a new group of believing people who are called the remnant, and they will understand everything that's happening as within God's sovereignty, and so they will hope, they will wait confidently and expectantly for God's purposes to be fulfilled. Just turn back a page to chapter 8 and verse uh, 17, page 691, chapter 8, verse 17. This is what Isaiah is saying. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. See, that puts it very clearly, doesn't it? I know that God is doing something at the moment which is a judgment, but he's promising something more wonderful beyond that. And so I'm going to wait for him. That means trust him, keep on holding on to him in the waiting time, because my hope is in him. Now, it's going to be a severe test, but God is gathering people who trust in him. Verse 16 talks about my disciples. Uh, Verse 18 talks about I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And we're not going to go anywhere else than God in finding our hope. You see how verse 19 is a forbidding of occult uh, religious practices, mediums and wizards and necromancers. Should uh, Should not a people inquire of their God, verse 19 says, Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? No, verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light, no dawn. So it's going to be a time of gloom and anguish. That comes in the last verse of chapter 8. Distress and darkness, gloom and anguish. But the hope that comes through trusting God and believing his promises is a hope that will ultimately be fulfilled. And so in that, with that background, we come to chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read just the first three verses. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And before we just plunge into that, let me say a word about how to interpret Old Testament prophecy. Because I'm hoping you're going to say, 
hmm, I'd like to find out more about Isaiah. Uh, but there is something here which is, um, I think, a little clue to help us. Um, you see, Old Testament prophecy doesn't just always have one place where it's fulfilled. Sometimes there are multiple fulfillments. So the way I think about it is like this. Uh, supposing we're going out for a, a, a walk in the hills for a sort of day's hike. And you set off in the morning and you see the hills ranged in front of you. Uh, one hill and another behind it and another behind it. And you, you think to yourself, I wonder how long it's going to take us to get there. Maybe we'll get to that first one by lunchtime, maybe to the second one by mid-afternoon. But sometimes when you do a walk like that, you find that the distance between the hills is much greater than you thought it was. And the way up and the way down and the way up take you longer than you thought. Now I want you to think about Old Testament prophecy as three hilltops that have much longer times of fulfilment between them than we might expect. So the first hilltop is, what did it mean to those people then? And whenever you're reading Old Testament prophecy, that's what you need to ask yourself first. What did it mean to them then? That's why we've done the historical context. Because if we don't get it right with them then, we won't get it right for us now. So we've got to do that little bit of work. We've got to say, what was going on here? The text will show us, the context reveals it. And what did it mean to those people then? Well, clearly here it meant that the forces that are attacking them in the north, Zebulun and Naphtali are the northern tribes that took the brunt of the Assyrian invasion. It's not going to always be like that. There's going to be release for them. There's going to be something better coming behind that initial judgment. What did it mean to them then? The second peak of fulfilment, which of course was 700 years later, is in the coming of Jesus. We saw in Luke 24 that Christ is the centre of all the scriptures and that therefore there's always a fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy in Jesus. So my first question is, what did it mean to them then? My second question is, what difference does it make now that Jesus has come? How is it fulfilled in him? What has he done in completing this prophecy? And that, of course, means that he's at the centre of the fulfilment, as we shall see in a few moments. And then my third peak is the eternal kingdom. We, if you like to think of ourselves in a chronological timeline, we're somewhere between the coming, the first coming and the second coming. And we're moving towards the climax of the eternal kingdom when Jesus returns in power and glory. So I want to say then for my third question, what is yet to be fulfilled in the eternal kingdom, the faithful city, the new Jerusalem? Now I think if you keep those questions in mind, you'll find it opens up lots and lots of prophetic passages. And after all, 15 books of the 39 in the Old Testament are prophecy books. It's not just foretelling the future, it's teaching the character of God. It's showing us his plans and purposes, how they work out. What did it mean to them then? What difference does it make that Jesus has come? And what is yet to be fulfilled? That's what we're looking forward to, the completion of all these Old Testament prophecies. So think about the three peaks, and uh, we'll try and just comment on them in that way as we go through. Now I want to suggest to you that there are two things here. The darkness is shattered by the arrival of the king who is revealed to us later on as the king of righteousness, 
But here we see that when God moves and brings his king, two things happen. There is transformation and there is explanation so that we understand why God is doing what he's doing. And the transformation is wonderful, isn't it? Verse 1, chapter 9 now. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So as I said, Zebulun and Naphtali were up in the north of the kingdom and uh, they were they were the area of which Galilee was just a little bit south. And isn't it interesting that it's Galilee that is mentioned. Here we are 700 years before Jesus comes and in the latter time, verse 1 says, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So from the Mediterranean across to the Jordan, that whole area with the Lake of Galilee was known as Galilee of the nations because it was on the main trade routes, the main trade route east, west and north, south. Galilee was always a cosmopolitan area. And when you start to read the Gospels, what do you read in Mark's Gospel? Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So even 700 years before, here Isaiah is saying, you need to look to Galilee. That's where it's all going to start to happen. And what will happen? Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, here's another little clue about reading prophecy. Sometimes it talks about the future as though it were the past. Oh, you say, that's rather confusing. But there's a reason for it. You see how it's a past tense there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, when Isaiah says this, they hadn't seen it and wouldn't see it for 700 years. So why does he put it in the past tense? Well, the reason is because God has decreed that it will happen and nothing is going to change it. As far as God is concerned, it's happened. Nothing's going to change it. Let me illustrate that for you by reminding you of what uh, Romans 8 says about us as Christians. Um, Because I think it's important to get this idea that sometimes the past tense is telling us about a certain future. That's why our hope is so strong. If you just to keep your finger in Isaiah 9, and let's go and have a quick look in Romans chapter 8, um, which you'll find on page 1138 page 1138, Romans chapter 8. And look with me at verse uh, 29. Romans eight twenty nine, Talking about Christian people who, like us, who've received the grace of God through the gospel. Paul says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now just stay with that verse for a moment. Put yourself in that verse. Before you ever knew Jesus, he predestined you to be his child. In the counsels of God, in eternity, He'd already chosen all of his people. So that was past. And for us now, it is past because we know that he's called us. That call came at a moment in time, many years ago or perhaps last year or even more recently. Who knows? 
Many of us have been Christians for different lengths of time, but we've all been called. And for us, that's in the past. He called us. He made us his children. And when he called us, he justified us. And that's in the past now. We are justified by his grace. We don't have to try and work for our justification. God has brought it about. He's accepted us uh, as righteous in the Lord Jesus, just as if I'd never sinned. And now look at the end of the verse. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yeah, but that's not past, is it? Uh, glorified. I mean, it's wonderful to be here at um, uh, Denham on uh, a weekend like this, but it's hardly, it's hardly glorification. I mean, if this is glorification, it is a bit of a letdown. So it can't be that that is past already. So why does he say he glorified? Well, because the God who called and justified is never going to lose you on the way to glory. He's going to bring you to his glory, to his heavenly kingdom. It's written in the counsels of God that those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And although the glorification is future to us now, it's put in the past tense because it's a sure and certain future. It depends upon the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. That's what our hope is built on. So you see, even in the New Testament, sometimes things that are future are expressed in the past because they're so certain. And now if we flip back to Isaiah chapter 9, you can see why he says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Because it's absolutely certain that they will. And although it waited until the coming of Jesus for that light to shine, he's the one who's the light of the world, all these things are put in the past tense because they are absolutely certain in the promises of God. Just as he sustains the physical order of the cosmos, so he rules over all the events of human history. And um, as Isaiah's hearers listened to him, and they thought about the Assyrian invasion that was threatening their country, he says to them that in three different ways, God is going to transform the situation. He's going to bring glory for contempt. See that in verse 1. He's made glorious the way uh, of Galilee uh, compared to the brought into contempt the land in verse 1. So that's going to change. The gloom and anguish is going to give way to glory. Secondly, there is light in the place of darkness, verse 2. And of course the two can't coexist. The light will always expel the darkness. So notice how the darkness has been their daily experience. They were walking in darkness. That's a verb about continuing experience it was their permanent residence that they dwelt that was their home address in a land of deep darkness but the light has shone on them and in God's transforming initiative then you can use the past tense again on them the light has shined because when Jesus came into the world he was the light he is light and in him there is no darkness at all so what the scholars call this is the prophetic past tense. And it's well recognised as being a way in which Jewish prophets often spoke. They put into the past what's yet to happen in the future because they knew that God will always be faithful to his word. And although this uh, transference from glory to contempt and from light to darkness and uh, thirdly from, re uh, from anguish to rejoicing 
You've multiplied the nation. You've increased the joy. Uh, it's like winning a great victory and dividing the spoil. All of this is there to show them that the best is yet to be. And uh, here is a total reversal. God is going to do something uh, that they have never really imagined possible. It's going to be like the joy of harvest. Um, for us these days, we don't really often think about that. But if you think about an agrarian economy in 7th centuries BC, you never knew if you were going to have a harvest or not. Would the rains come? Uh, would there be a harvest? Would your enemies come in and take your harvest away? If you had a harvest, there was great joy, great gladness. And so uh, as we think of that, we can, we can identify it with it in a certain way. I mean, we wouldn't use that imagery. We'd say it's like the joy of somebody who wins a gold medal at the Olympics. That they put in lots and lots of years, probably, of hard effort and training uh, and developing their skills and their strength. And eventually, that medal is theirs. That's like the joy of harvest. That's like being glad when you divide the spoil. You've got what you put in the hard work for. You've won the victory. But just like a gold medal is only transient, so God's harvest, God's reward, God's victory will be eternal. Now, that then is what God is going to do. Instead of contempt, he'll bring glory. Instead of darkness, light. And instead of sorrow and anguish, he will bring rejoicing. And this is to be fulfilled when Emmanuel comes. Now, the explanation is then given to us in verses 4 to 7. And uh, we don't often read these verses. We often read verse 2 at a carol service and verses 6 and 7. But in between, there are some wonderful promises here. And again, uh, like the, um, the great preacher that he is, Isaiah has his three points here. Why is it glory and light and rejoicing? Well, because of what God is going to do. He will end oppression. See that in verse 4? The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken, as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian refers back to the great victory that Gideon won in Judges chapter 6 to 8. You remember the story when 300 men of Israel routed the Midianite army against all the predictions of the BBC and the opinion polls because God was with them and his mighty power brought about the victory. So this is a victory you wouldn't expect, but it's a victory that God brings about. Think of Jesus all the time. See, it's all pictures of how Christ has overcome the forces of evil. The yoke, the stick, the rod, the cudgel, they're all weapons of the oppressor to intimidate and terrorise and inflict pain and suffering. That's what sin does to us. That's what the devil does in our lives. But it's been broken because the Emmanuel has come. No more oppression, no more conflict or war in verse 5. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. No more kitting out for war. No more blood-soaked uniforms of the defeated, decimated armies. It's over. Throw them into the flames. It's history. Nation is speaking peace to nation, as Isaiah prophesied. No more slavery in Egypt. No more conquest by Assyria. But is that really possible? Can we really wait confidently and expectantly for its fulfilment? Or is it just another, well, it would be nice if it happened, but maybe it won't. 
Well, verses 6 and 7 put it beyond all doubt. Because this happens, no more oppression and no more conflict, when and because God's king rules. And so his everlasting kingdom has come. And these are wonderful verses, aren't they? We love them at Christmas time, but they're good at any time in the year because they remind us of what God has done in Christ. Again, it's put in the past tense. For to us, a child is born. There's the current, uh, if you like, it's a sort of present, but it's saying he's been born. To us, a son has been given. And then the future, the government will be upon his shoulder. And then we're given his wonderful names. So, Here is God intervening. Remember the the problem? How is the faithless city going to become a faithful city? A child is going to be born. Chapter 7 says his name is Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. He's going to be a son who is given. In this case, the very son of God. And he is going to be the one who is the universal ruler. The government will be upon his shoulder. This then is the transformation that is going to come about. Now, in order for us to understand that, the next part, verse 6b and 7, expounds for us who this wonderful deliverer is. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, you will see that there are four names there made up of two parts. What is very interesting, and this of course fits with Emmanuel, is that one of the half of the names in each of the four cases, one half is a divine word and one half is a human word. So the word wonderful is only used in the Old Testament about God. It's an adjective that describes God. He is full of wonder. But the word counsellor is a human word. There are lots of counsellors in the Old Testament. It's a very important role, giving wisdom and instruction. But this one who is coming, this son who will be born, his name, because of course his name reveals his nature, will be the godly, wonderful counsellor. Then secondly, mighty is a human word. There are lots of mighty men in in the Bible. But God is a divine word, of course. It's the very name of God. Everlasting is a divine word. Only God is everlasting. Humans are by definition mortal. But father is a human word. And fatherhood is common to us all. We all know the experience of fatherhood. Prince is a human word. It's a role that someone fulfills in the kingdom. But peace is the word shalom, which is a divine word. Only God can give peace. So the four names, you see, are each one a blend of the human and divine. Immanuel. El is God. Immanuel with us. The with us God. Not just a human being, but a divine being, who is both perfectly God and perfectly man. And here it is, 700 years before it happens, written down by Isaiah. And that's why he can say in verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace, that's the fruit of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So he's going to be in the line of David. That's why the New Testament gives us the family line of Jesus, tracing it through David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it 
with justice and with righteousness. Now look at this. From this time forth and forevermore. Well, that means eternally. So who can be an eternal king? Only God. No human king is eternal. We have a queen on the throne who's lasted for many, many years. uh, And we thank God for that. But she will die. No human ruler is eternal. But this ruler, from this time forth and forevermore, will rule in righteousness and justice. So this is no ordinary kingdom. And this is no ordinary king. And as he comes into the world, the princely rule has already been placed on his shoulder, even though it wasn't acknowledged. Do you remember how John says in his gospel, he was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, John says, his name, that is his nature, his person, he gave the right to become children of God. You're a child of God? It's because you believe that Jesus is the King, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And if we don't believe that, we're not children of God. We're creatures of God. God is our Creator, but He becomes our Father when we bow the knee to His Son and acknowledge Jesus as our King. Now, that is the transformation that He can bring in, that he does bring into the world and he can make us members of God's family so let's thank God that all those centuries before this is the work of the Lord Jesus being expounded by Isaiah and that this kingdom of which we are members is an everlasting kingdom that it will never fade away So we see that kingdom at work in the world. What difference does it make that Jesus has come? He's fulfilled all this. But we are looking forward to its ultimate, eternal fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. And therefore, we're in the waiting time for that. And we need to hold on to the glory and honour of being his redeemed people. Even though, at the moment, in the world, it may look like contempt and darkness and anguish, to go back to those first three verses, you see. The world often holds Christians in contempt. The world is often an overwhelming, thick darkness that, are, that is all around us and that sometimes seems to exterminate the light. And the world often produces sorrow and anguish because of its conflicts and its destructive behaviour. But in the midst of all of this, those who hope in God rejoice in the victory that he's already achieved. We don't go back to the slavery of sin. We don't lose our sense of well-being, of shalom, through carelessness or compromise. We rejoice in who Jesus is and we seek to grow into his likeness in every possible way. So he smashed Satan's tyranny when he died on the cross. He broke the chains of sin and death and he united us to himself in endless love and peace. So we are to be people of hope because the best is yet to be. The sure and certain hope that's transformed and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, knowing that he'll bring every one of his believing people into the fullness of joy in the eternal kingdom. That is our hope. And that is the way we are to live. 
Somebody said to me the other day, and I think it's a very um, worthwhile thought, that perhaps what the world needs to see these days is not so many salesmen of the gospel, but to have more free samples. <laughs> and that's what we can be. I mean, we may feel we're not great salespeople of the gospel. We don't have to be, but we can be a free sample. We can live a life of faith and hope. We can be people who are pointing others away to the Lord Jesus. And uh, I think that's a wonderful way to look at your life at work and in all the relationships that you have and in all the busyness of life. Never undervalue what God can do with one life that is seeking every day to be changed into his likeness. Never undervalue that. You never know what God is going to do. Live a life of hope. There's a lovely uh, illustration of this in a book I read some years ago now called The Becomers. It was written by an American Christian businessman, Keith Miller. And he tells the story, I don't know if it's his story, but he says it's a true story, about uh, a Christian businessman who somehow it all got sort of out of proportion and he drifted away from God and uh, it wasn't really, he wasn't really living a Christian life. But he went to church one Sunday night and God got through to him through what he heard preached and convicted him, a bit like Isaiah, I guess, of his sin. And he confessed that and asked the Lord to forgive it. And he said, Lord, I want to serve you tomorrow. I want you to I want to be with you to be with me this week and to help me to be a Christian in the business place. Well, OK, it's Monday morning and he goes up to town in the train and um, he uh, is late, of course, because it's Monday morning. So he's running across the bridge and down the steps to the platform and the train is there, you know, and the whistles are blowing and it's all ready to go. And he runs smack into a little boy who is carrying a jigsaw puzzle. And the jigsaw puzzle cascades out of the box and goes all over the platform. And here's the man who prayed last night, I want to be like Jesus. So he thinks to himself, what will Jesus do? So he gets down on his knees and he picks up the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and the train goes out of the station. The Lord doesn't miraculously stop it. Uh, it goes out of the station and he's going to be late for work. But he puts the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle into the box and I don't know why the little boy said this, but it's a true story. The little boy turned to him and said, Thank you, mister. Are you Jesus? <laughs> now, shouldn't people be saying that day by day? We'll never hear them say it. But if we live lives of hope and li lives of faithful service to the Lord, people will say, yeah, that's different. And maybe they'll come to see that that's Jesus and that we can be channels of the power of the Lord Jesus and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of the Lord Jesus, wherever we are. Uh, and, and, and it's that sort of authentic Christian life that really cuts through and that shows people the hope of our calling, that there is something so much better. Now, if we are united to Jesus, let's think in the last 10 minutes or so about the second passage, chapter 11. If we are united to Jesus, then who Jesus is, is going to be experienced by us in our own lives, because we're united to him by faith. We are, if you like, um, plugged in to his life. And in chapter 11, page 695, we have this wonderful picture of the Messiah, the one who is going to be the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, God with us, who is going to come from the shoot, from the stump of Jesse, in chapter 11, verse 1, 
Uh, Do you remember how we saw in chapter 6 that the holy seed is in the stump? Well, here is the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. David is the great king of Israel. So from the stump of Jesse means there's going to be a king in the line of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. It will be a fruitful, life-giving branch. Now, who is this branch and what is he going to do? Well, our second main point, God's king reigns. Because this branch is none other than the Messiah king, the Emmanuel, who is coming to bring about God's sovereign rule in the world. He's going to appear as a man, of course, because he's in a human kingly role. But the secret of his rule is revealed in verse 2. The spirit, this is chapter 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that it says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him? That is to say, not just come upon him and perhaps leave, as was often the case in the Old Testament, but this is going to be a permanent endowment of the spirit. When Jesus was baptised, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove as a visible fulfilment of the prophecy. And a voice from heaven said, look, this is my son. Here is my promised Messiah. Now, he was no less divine before that event. He was always the son of God. How could he be anything else? He was always very God of very God. But for Isaiah... The Messiah is permanently endowed with the very life of God. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. And in his earthly life and ministry, you see the fruit of that. So what qualities does the spirit produce in the king? And by implication, what qualities does he want to produce in us? If we are united to the king and he's living in us by his spirit. Well, wisdom and understanding. Now, obviously, if you are a ruler, a king, that is what every ruler needs, wisdom and understanding. And it enables him to see to the heart of the issues and uh, to um, understand how to deal with them judiciously. Then it talks about counsel and might or power. So he's not only going to discern what is right, but he has the personal ability to put it into practice. And then he has a spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, which gives him his moral compass in life, knowing the Father, the Lord Jesus lived in reverent submission to him. So he could say, I always do the things that please the Father. And his delight was in obeying, fearing, reverencing his holy Father in heaven. Well, that is uniquely so in Jesus, but it's what he wants to be producing in us. Wouldn't it be great as we grow in our Christian lives and in our personal maturity to be people of wisdom and understanding, people of counsel who are able to put into practice the things that we learn, people of knowledge who revere the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not terror, of course. It means awesome reverence of God as God. Jesus can help us with that. That's why he's come to produce a kingdom of people whose lives are being transformed. So this is the quality of of his person. And then you see the quality of his work, his rule. Verse uh, 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Uh, That's all we can do, isn't it? 
you know, if you're asked to make a judgment at work, if you're in a managerial position, you can only assimilate the evidence and take what people say and see what you can see. But he has a greater knowledge than that. For verse 4, he will with righteousness judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. So this is something way beyond us. This is what makes him the unique and individual king who is able to bring about his righteous rule and to remove the opposition of evil uh, which is ranged against him. Verse 5 speaks about the clothing that he has, which indicates the office that he fulfills. Righteousness is the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. Um, That is to say, his holy character and his faithful commitment to his word, these are the things that bind him together. These are the things that are the, the sort of foundations of his being. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it like to live in that kingdom? If this is the quality of his rule, what does it mean to be in the blessings of his kingship? Well, as we close, verses 6 to 9 tell us. And in a word, it's the restoration of everything that was lost in Eden, only it's more wonderful. Uh, There's lots of animal imagery there, isn't there? Um, It means the end of hostility, animosity, fear, the wolf and the lamb... Well, the lamb is obviously a prey of the wolf and would be fearful of the wolf. All that's going to go. The animosity is symbolised by these animal images. Verse 7 hints at a change in nature which enables reconciliation between the lion and the, and the ox. And verse 8 uh, surely must mean that there is no longer enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent though that, of course, stems from Genesis 3. So the curse is being undone. That's the point of these images. If the little child can play on the whole of the cobra, then in this new kingdom in which the king of righteousness reigns, in which his rule is exercised over his people, the curse is no more. Uh, He has become a curse for us that we might know the freedom from the curse And verse 9 summarises the blessings of the kingdom, which is not so much a return to Eden, perhaps, as Mount Zion, that is the temple mountain, Jerusalem, rising to bring to all the earth the knowledge of the Lord. That's what verse 9 means, I think. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Well, the holy mountain is the temple mountain in Jerusalem. It's the place where God's presence is manifested. But now it's not just in Jerusalem, for, verse 9b, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the kingdom of God, the universal, eternal kingdom into which we have come by grace. So as the writer says, you come to Mount Zion, this is Hebrews chapter 12, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. And you have come, he says, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' shed blood cries out for forgiveness. 
How is the faithless city to become the faithful city? Through Jesus, the mediator, the sprinkled blood of his sacrifice for sin, and the kingly rule as he has conquered death and conquered the devil and conquered all the hostile powers through his own death and resurrection. And lastly, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, that is the figure that was introduced in verse 1, will stand as a signal, and a, ba- a banner, a place that people rally to for the people. And of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. That is to say, his resting place is where the glory is in faith and trust in him. So there are two of the blessings of his kingship, the curse undone, the nations gathered. We are proof of that here this morning. And all over the world, that is happening still. He's triumphant over all the hostile powers. He reigns and rests seated on his throne in unimaginable glory. And that's where his people from every kindred and language and tribe and nation will one day come. And the remaining verses of chapter 11, which we don't have time to look at, picture people coming from the north and the east and the south and the west, flocking into the glory of the kingdom of the perfect king. And that's what's happening today. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And God, the king, is reigning and gathering his people from all places across the globe into the everlasting kingdom of his mercy and his grace. So we should be people of great hope. Uh, The best is yet to be. God has yet to fulfill this in its completion, but already we see so many ways in which it is being fulfilled and has been fulfilled through the history of the church. The king of righteousness is established on the throne and our part is to glorify him, to praise him, to uh, lay our lives before him and to ask him to be pleased to use us as channels of his grace wherever we are. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the King of Heaven is ruling over all the created order. We thank you that the throne over the universe is not unoccupied. And we praise you that the Lamb who was slain is in the midst of that throne. The one who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to live our lives under the kingly rule of the Lord Jesus. Please, Lord, save us from the folly of trying to run things our own way or resisting, not trusting the promises and not obeying the commands. Please make us people who are true disciples people in whose heart the word of God rules because the king who is the Lord of all rules. So we pray that you'd help us to deal with those areas where we need to return to you and renew our commitment to you. And we pray that you will increase our sense of hope and expectation. And we thank you that you are gathering your people from all around the world for that great day when Jesus returns and when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So may we live lives of transformation, may we be channels of love and grace and truth, and may we be people who live under your authority, 
trusting your spirit to guide us and make us more like Jesus day by day. And most of all, living our lives in this world in the light of the eternal kingdom. Hear us, Lord, in these things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.